Welcome to Closer to God Today, the evangelistic ministry of Reverend Jack Cayley. Our hope is that people draw close to God by coming to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Now, here's your host, Jack Cayley. Hello once again, everybody. This is Jack Cayley of Closer to God Today, speaking on a subject which is I think absolutely necessary if one is to walk close to God today and if one is to live life and love it with the Lord Jesus Christ. That subject is the subject of obedience. In the second chapter of John, fifth verse, that's the account where Jesus is turning the water into wine, that first miracle. And the stewards come up to Mary, Jesus' mother, and she says to them, do whatever he tells you to do. And I want to take off with you from that sentence. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Of course, if we're going to do that, we're going to have to have a personal, passionate relationship with Jesus Christ And we're going to know what he does tell us to do. We're going to have to know that. So let's begin here by thinking of Jesus as Master and Lord. In the book of Acts, the ninth chapter, the first 20 verses, we have the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have an example also of the mystery of believing or the mystery of trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the account here of the transformation of this man Saul, his actually being born again. And here on the road to Damascus, he meets Jesus face to face. And this meeting changed him from a strong-willed, intense Pharisee to a humble, devoted, in his own words, slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, or Saul, becomes immediately obedient to the Lord Jesus. And these are a couple of steps here in this obedience. Acts 9, 17, the account says that Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is an absolute necessity if one is to be obedient to Jesus Christ. He must be filled with Jesus. He must be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He must receive and make room for Jesus through his Holy Spirit in his life if he's going to come under the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, in Acts the ninth chapter, the 20th to 22nd verses, we find that in obedience to what Christ told him to do, Saul begins to preach Jesus as the Son of God. Now, it would seem that it would have been a little easier for Saul if he had gone someplace other than Damascus, because Saul of Tarsus was not in very good favor at Damascus. He began his persecutions of the Christians with letters of authority from the synagogues to go to Damascus. 
and to, and to kill the Christians. At least bring them back to Jerusalem for being stoned to death or whatever. So it would have been easier to start someplace else. Someplace where they didn't know his past. But Saul didn't do that. He's really saying, I'm a changed man. And I am determined that those who know me best will know that I am changed. He's already saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we need to see uh, another thing here in regard to being having Jesus as Lord and Master. It's not natural for us to obey. We were born in a sinful state because of original sin, and our nature is one that is uh, uh, not obedient. We are naturally disobedient. Now, it may not be sinful to disobey, for we must recognize in our obedience a higher authority in the other person. And unless we see that higher authority, uh, then our disobedience does not look sinful to us. However, in Jesus, we find not one to whom we, in whom we look at ourselves as being a slave to, that is, a disobedient slave to, we recognize in Jesus God behind the authority figure. For only Jesus is rightfully the master of our human heart. He earned the right to be our master and our Lord. When we live our life in obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we find not slavery, but the freedom of eternal life. Well, how does Jesus view our obedience? Let's look at John, the 13th chapter, the 12th to the 17th verses. And here you see uh, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. In the 13th verse, Jesus says to the disciples, You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Now, there's a big difference between having a master and being mastered. In the person of Jesus Christ, we find one, as I said before, who has earned the right to be our master. We find one who knows us better than we know ourselves. One who is greater in every way than I can ever be. And yet one who is much more humble than I have ever been. In this account, Jesus himself did what none of these men was prepared to do. Then he said to them, You see what I've done? You call me your master and your Lord, and you're quite right, for so I am. And yet I'm prepared to do this for you. Surely you don't think that a pupil deserves more honor than a teacher or a servant than a master. Surely, if I do this, you ought to be prepared to do it. I'm giving you an example of how you ought to behave towards each other. And this should make you and me think. So often, even in our churches, trouble arises because someone does not get his rightful place. So often, even among our leadership, 
people are offended because they didn't receive the precedence to which their office entitled them. Now here is the lesson that there's only one kind of greatness, the greatness of service. The world, of course, is full of people who are standing on their own dignity when they ought to be kneeling at the feet of each other. In every sphere of life, desire for prominence and unwillingness to take a subordinate place wreck the scheme of things. Isn't that true? A player is one day admitted from the team and refuses to play anymore. He says, if I can't play by my rules and with my ball, I'll just go on home. An inspiring politician has passed over for some office to which he thought he had a right, and he refuses to accept a subordinate office. A member of the choir is not given a solo position, and so therefore she or he will not sing anymore. In our society, it may happen that someone is given a quite unintentional slight and either explodes in anger or broods in sulkiness for days afterwards. Let us look at it this way. When you and I are tempted to think of our dignity and our prestige and our rights, we should look again at the picture of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, with a towel around his waist, kneeling at his disciples' feet. So in Jesus, I find a master in the Lord who wants to bring me to humility. I also find one who is closer than a brother, closer than a friend, closer than anything that I've ever met. He calls me friend. And I like that. In John 15, 11 to 17, I hear him say this to me. And I wish that you could be free with the scriptures and perhaps read them from the first person. That's the way I find it most helpful to me. And I'd like to read it from that standpoint. <clears throat> Dear Jack, I'm reading from the 15th chapter, the 11th verse and following. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this to you. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this that one lay down his life for his friends. And Jack, you are my friend if you do what I command you to do. I no longer call you a servant, because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I call you friend, for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Notice carefully here now. Love each other. You see in this account that Jesus called us to be his friends. He tells his men that he did not call them slaves anymore, but friends. Now that's a saying which would be even greater to those who heard it for the first time than it is to us. 
The word for slave, the servant of God, was no title of shame in Jesus' day. It was a title of the highest honor. Moses, for instance, was the servant or the slave of God. So was Joshua. So was David. It's a title which Paul counted it an honor to use, and so did James. The greatest men, therefore, in the past had been proud to be called the slave of God. But Jesus says, I have something greater for you. And put your own name in there, whatever it is. You're no longer a slave. You're my friend. Jesus offers us an intimacy with God, which not even the greatest men of the past knew before he came into the world. I think this is fantastic. It gives me a sense of worthwhileness, a sense of meaning, of being something in the eyes of God. For Jesus calls us to be his friends and the friends of God. And that's a fantastic offer. It means that no longer do I need to gaze longingly at God from afar off. He's not out there, just out there someplace. He's my friend. He's close. We're not like slaves who have no right whatever to enter into the presence of the master. We're not like a crowd whose only glimpse of the king is in the passing of some state occasion and we're way off in the bleachers someplace. Jesus cuts us right in on the action. He gives us this intimacy with God so that he's no longer a distant stranger but our very closest and dearest friend. And as I said, he cuts us in on the action, the salvation action. And he asks us to be a full partner and friend with him in the bringing of lost souls to know the Heavenly Father and thus become saved, no longer lost. In Jesus, I find one who fathoms the deepest recesses of my heart and he satisfies my heart. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah describes the coming Jesus in this way. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took upon, upon himself our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. This is the one who satisfies me, the deepest longings of my heart. He's earned the right to do that.
because he stood in my place. And this satisfaction, which Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit, and he enumerates it, is what everybody wants and what everybody must have if they're to live life and love it with Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul says in the fifth chapter of Galatians, 22nd verse, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, Paul says, there's no law. There's nothing that can take them away or cause us to ever be dissatisfied again. In Jesus, I find one that I know that has met and solved every perplexity of my own mind. So Jesus is the only person that has ever earned the right to be my master and my Lord. And when I permit him to be that, which he is and rightfully is and going to be anyway, but when I permit him to be that in obedience to him, I find eternal life right here, right now. Now, Jesus does not enforce our obedience. He does not insist on having authority. He doesn't say, you will. He gives us freedom. He gives us freedom to spit in his face, as men did, and as we sometimes do. He gives us freedom to put him to death, as men did, and as we sometimes do. We just simply crucify him over and over in our sin. And he doesn't take the means to make me do what he wants me to do. He just says to me, Jack, if you want to, I don't have to do the Beatitudes that we find in Matthew 5. I don't have to be poor in spirit. But if I'm not, he says I won't be able to see the kingdom of heaven. I don't have to mourn over my sins. I don't even have to be sorry for them. But if I will not, then I cannot be comforted. For you see, Jesus is giving us something that only those who are close to him, who follow him closely, can have. He's giving us something here. He's talking about our having something here, this blessedness, which only those who are obedient to him can have because he can give it only to those who are obedient. I don't have to be meek, but I'll never inherit the earth with Jesus if I'm not. I don't have to hunger and thirst after righteousness or Jesus. I can hunger and thirst after something else. But I'll never be filled with the living water that causes me never to thirst again unless I hunger and thirst after Jesus, for he is the source of that living water. I don't have to be merciful, but I'll never be shown mercy in this life if I'm not. I don't have to be pure at heart, but if I won't be, I won't see God. 
I don't have to be a peacemaker. I can be warlike. I can be one who disturbs everybody if I want to. But I can't be that and be called the Son of God. I don't have to take a stand for Jesus to the point where I'm persecuted for righteousness' sake or for His sake. But if I will not, then I can't be with Him in the kingdom of heaven. I didn't say these things. You didn't say these things. Jesus says these things. We think it might be easier if He would just make us obey just fix us some way so that we could not be a disobedient. Then we wouldn't run the risk of losing our blessings because of our disobedience. Then we would not have to exercise love choices. These would be made for us. But that's not the way it happens. Not at all. This causes me to ask you a question. What's your attitude toward Jesus as Master and Lord? Many of us prefer the word Savior, and He is that. Praise God, He is that. Sanctifier, and He does set us aside for the Heavenly Father. Hallelujah. Many of us would like to see Him as healer, and that would take precedence. And he does heal physically, mentally, spiritually, hundreds of thousands of people. And we ought to praise God for that. However, the word that best describes the mastership of Jesus Christ in our experience is love as God reveals it in Jesus Christ. Now the world as you and I know it knows nothing of this. For the world is that enmity to Jesus Christ, not in love. The world hates Christ. These are not my words. These are the words of the Lord Jesus himself. And if you and I will just open our eyes, we'll see that this is the fact. And if you're listening to this tape today, friend, and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you fall right in to that category as one who hates Jesus Christ. For Jesus says you must be either with me or you will have to be against me. And I pray for you right now that you'll just simply turn your life over to Christ in obedience to him and become not his enemy but his friend. I'm sorry to say that many in our Christian fellowships or our churches don't have much of an idea either about what this love of Jesus Christ really is. As I see it, Jesus as love, the experience of him as love, calls for a sacrifice of the right to myself. I no longer have the right to myself if I'm going to be in a loving obedience to Jesus, there has to come a dying out to my own desires, my own ambitions, my own needs. And I must make myself available to be whatever is necessary for another person. I literally become 
a sacrament. I literally become poured out like a drink offering, as Paul talks about it. Therefore, love involves choice. And Jesus talks about this choice to his disciples there in the seventh chapter of Matthew. When he, in the 13th and the 14th verses. Enter through the narrow gate, he says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Here we have Jesus giving us a choice of the two ways, narrow and broad. There's always a certain dramatic quality about life. All life concentrate on, concentrates on man at the crossroads, doesn't it? Jesus is talking about the crossroads here. Or the why and the road, we take one road or the other. In every action of our life, we're confronted with a choice. And we can never evade that choice. Because we can never stand still. We must always take one way or the other. And because of this, it's always been one of the supreme functions of men, great men, of history. That they should confront men with inevitable choices. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Moses did. That's exactly what Joshua did. That's exactly what Jeremiah did. For instance, Moses spoke to the people. See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. Therefore, choose life that you and your descendants may live. That's found in Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter, the 15th to the 20th verses. You might want to look at that further. And when Joshua was laying down the leadership of the nation at the end of his life, he presented them with the same choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. And then he goes on to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 15. Jeremiah heard the voice of the Lord speaking to him, and to this people you will say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. That's Jeremiah 21.8. So obedience to Jesus involves a choice, doesn't it? A love choice. We choose Jesus and his way, or we choose the world and its way. One leads to heaven, the other leads to destruction. As we look further at this word obedience, obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that, biblically speaking, obedience is based on the relationship of equals. It was based on the father-son relationship with Jesus and the Heavenly Father, not the master-servant relationship. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by things which he suffered. Well, what if we feel mastered? If we do, 
then we really have no master at all. For self is still in or fighting for control of our lives. Now this is not the relationship of one in abundant life. For in abundant life, I am so in love with him that no conscious knowledge of being mastered is sensed by me at all. His life has been created in me when I'm born again. And so I instantly recognize his right to absolute authority over me. It becomes a moral domination, and I say, Jesus, you are worthy. When we truly see Jesus, we obey him instantly. He is easily Lord, and we live in adoration of him. Now, as we get ready for this second session, ask yourself the question, is Jesus easily my Lord, and am I living in adoration of him? Have I ever said, Jesus, you are worthy? Have I ever really said, Jesus, you have the right to me? I want to die out to my own desires, my own ambitions, my own needs. I want to make myself totally available to be whatever is necessary for you and for my fellow men. Contemplate this. Contemplate it carefully, especially if you want to live life and love it with Jesus. Thank you for listening to another broadcast of Closer to God Today. We hope this message has both blessed and encouraged your walk with the Lord. Please take a moment to visit our website, closertogodtoday.org. That's closertogodtoday.org.